I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome Hello. to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. Each Featuring week. Shanna Paxton. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a joke. <laughs> Each week, we start with our week in review, where we talk about what we've both watched since our last episode. Move on to our main event, which is either a main review or a topic of discussion, and then finish up with film faves. Our countdown of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic, usually marching through time. In this episode, our main event is a review of Thor Ragnarok. And our film faves segment will go back to marching through time with... The year 2005! That's right. But let's start first with our Week in Review. Shanna, you had uh, something that you watched this past week you wanted to talk about. Yes. I got to watch the new Law and Order, True Crimes, The Menendez Murders. Um, And I'm breaking that up because I think it's like the longest title ever. And I totally sound like I'm in high school right now. So, oh my gosh. But it's available on Hulu, and I already know how Jeff feels about this show, and he hasn't even watched it. How how do I feel about it? You feel that it's a copy of how successful the OJ trial show was. Ah, yes. If you watch the commercials, it really does feel like it was a project that was greenlit to try to take advantage of the success of that miniseries. Now, I don't care about that. Law and Order has been around for nearly two decades. Yeah, but does this have the Law and Order cast in it? No. No. Doesn't it feel like they okay, just slapped that? I am still that? talking. I'm still talking. So, I have the talking stick. If they would like to evolve in that direction, let them give it a try for one or two or three stories. Law and Order is trial-based. They have a great way of telling their crime stories. And usually they are basing their episodes on something that did happen, that could happen, but it's never a true depiction. And I was surprised, quite frankly, that they hadn't tried this sooner. And that's probably because they're so formulaic with their episodes that this is them trying to get out of the box. It still feels very much like a Law and Order episode. It doesn't have the ding ding, which is kind of sad because I really love the ding ding. <laughs> it lets me know I need to look at the screen. So I'm finding it quite educational. I haven't finished it yet, but I really do like the way they. You know, it is a very sort of bland show. That's just how they are. They're very, like, factual. They don't jazz things up with some action or anything like that. And it's kind of a nice pace for a change compared to something like Criminal Minds. You weren't familiar with this case previously at all, right? No, this is, like, total American crime. You know, maybe my mother was because I believe it was televised. That's well, what I'm beginning to learn. It was kind of that era. It was a big deal. Yeah, it was all over the news. As you can imagine, probably get that impression from the thing. But doesn't it feel like NBC just kind of slapped the Law & Order 
title on this because they really wanted to tell the story? No. Here's why I disagree with you. It still has the formulaic approach that the Law and Order TV shows have. Okay. It just has a bigger continuation. In the Law and Order episodes like SVU and the original one and Criminal Intent, the only evolution you have in those TV shows is small little bits of character development. Mm. Main character development. Right, right. Tiny doses. Yeah, you're actually starting to dive into the different char- main characters. You're starting to see who they are, what they were going through. And yeah. that's cool because it's real, you know, it's based on this real event. Right. Is it better than the OJ stuff? Mm-hmm. No. Why? Well, the OJ stuff had everything. It had a bit of glitz. It had a bit of action. It had truth to it. It had character development that just seemed deeper. Like, you know when, uh, who is OJ's friend? The Kardashian. Yeah, Rob Kardashian. Okay. You could see there was, like, character development there. You could really see that the actor was really getting into who that character might, who that person might have been. Sure. What, and you saw him kind of build upon who that person was. Okay. Whereas I haven't seen that yet. I'm on episode six, so maybe it's going to get to that. But I think people who like to watch crime shows should give this a try and see if they if they like it. Uh, so how many episodes are there? It seems to me that there is a total of eight episodes. Okay, so you're almost done with the series. Yeah. So far. Okay, well... I have not seen it. I don't know if I'm terribly interested in, in seeing it. I don't it. think it's your thing. I mean, I really, really dug the O.J. Simpson, the People vs. O.J. Simpson miniseries. I thought that was exceptional and fascinating, and I learned a lot about something that I remember being all over the news when I was 13, 14 years old, and and I, I, I learned uh, quite a bit about how that went down. The Menendez trial is not something that really excites me or interests me but so i'll take your take your word for it and i'm sure anybody else who's into true crime or other crime shows will be uh interested in checking that out too i don't have anything else that i watched by myself i have stuff that i watched with you that's right and likewise i did not really get a chance to watch anything my own since our last episode so let's move into our week in review First of all, one thing that we forgot to talk about last episode was a film that we saw together called Never Let Me Go, which I had seen before, and I was showing you this film that stars Kira Knightley, Carrie Mulligan, and Andrew Garfield. That was a beautiful film. Now, Carrie Mulligan and Andrew Garfield were not well known at this point, I think, Carrie Mulligan had just starred in An Education and got some attention the year before, if I'm not mistaken. I think this was in 2010. And Andrew Garfield was also starring in The Social Network that year. And people were really turning their heads, especially critics. But this is a film that is based on a book by Kazuo Ishiguro. And the screenplay adapted the book by Alex Garland. And the film was directed by Mark Romanek, who is a music video director and the director of One Hour Photo with Robin Williams about eight years before. So not a lot of uh, work before. 
I find the story one to that's best to kind of unfold before you and not know much about what it's about and about these characters as the there's a lot of little details that are fed to you that you slowly get to understand the world that is being built so there's a lot of things that I think if you haven't checked out this movie I want to leave vague for you but Shannon what did you think of the film Never Let Me Go? The unfortunate thing is you're saying that you want to leave it vague for everyone and I have a good I, I have a good comparison to make to another film and I'm just sitting here and I'm like you just took away my whole argument. <laughs> I know. I think the other film that you want to talk about yeah. is a more on the nose version, right? Yeah, and yeah. it's totally Hollywood anized and just not beautiful. It's just <laughs> Actiony and mm-hmm. yeah, the lighting is actiony and bright and fun and uh, I don't know. Is it a Michael Bay film? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it's Michael Bay, like you could say. Yeah, and they're trying to have a love story, but it's just it's not real. And I feel that way about that film now after seeing this film because I watched that film in 2005. Mm. <laughs> it's funny that you're mentioning. This movie. Ooh, will we hear more about that movie? No. Oh, okay. (laughs) And I just think that this was a more honest movie about a world like that. Yeah, uh, I haven't seen the other film that you're alluding to, however, because I avoided it like the plague. But uh, this film. Yeah, I can can foresee a train wreck. (laughs) But. This film, Never Let Me Go, I just feel it's it's really subtle. It creeps up on you. I think, I think it's unfairly criticized as a dry film. By I some. don't think it's dry at all. I do think it's absolutely heartbreaking. And there are certain scenes that really just, uh, just really crush me near the end of the film. And I wish we could have like a whole spoilery review about this film, because you and I discussed uh, in in depth uh, this film after watching it, and all the third act revelations and things, and and why I found the film to be so emotionally profound. But I can't I can't talk about that without talking about what it is what what it's about. Yeah, we highly recommend it. You guys should check it out. Definitely. The next movie that we saw together was uh, another blind spot of Shanna's, which was 1986's Aliens. It's only a blind spot because I saw it when I was like, I don't know, three or five, and it was scary looking, so I never touched it again. Yeah, three or five is definitely too young to be watching any of these movies, for sure. Uh, But what did you think of Aliens? You had... To back up, you had previously seen the original Alien film and you had seen Prometheus, right? Nothing oh. else? So, yeah, that's true. I hated Prometheus, just to sidetrack a little bit. I loved Alien. Prometheus felt like there was no connection. It just felt like a visual spectacle, or it was trying to be a visual spectacle, and that was it. Aliens, anything with Sigourney Weaver is awesome for me. I will watch whatever she's in. I don't care if she has a tiny role or a big role. I will watch her. It was a good sequel, I felt. 
and those are usually so touch and go. I thought it was a good display of blue collar versus the suits, or rather experience versus stupidity. Mm. Uh, we also have a new name for our future kid uh, possibility, which is Ripley. Uh, it's a great F-rated female character, and I'm glad that I got to watch it. Yeah, I mean, uh, just really quickly to split hairs, it's not quite an F-rated movie because it was directed by James Cameron and the script was written by James Cameron and uh, David Geiler. Well, wouldn't you agree that her character qualifies as F-rated? Well, yeah. I mean, I did name it as my favorite F-rated movie as far as IMDb is concerned. It is one of the keywords that IMDb uses to describe the film, but I just wanted to clarify that it's point. not a triple but anyway this is probably like the sixth time or so i've seen this film i think it's my favorite of the entire alien series it is a sequel that is superior to the original a, a film in its own which is a classic and an and a great film. It's a great monster movie. Oh, this God. Film, I completely forgot. I am going to interrupt you because this is for all the people out there who love this actor. What is his name? He's Reese in Terminator. Michael Bean. Ah, yes. He's in there, and he's quite delicious. So go ahead and check it out. Okay. The original Alien is a great monster movie. This film is a great action sci-fi film, you know? Like... James Cameron, you also have to remember, and it's hard to to do this, but take a step back. This is basically James Cameron's second film, you know? Some people, if they want to get technical, they mention Piranha 2, The Spawning, but he even (laughs) denounces that because it really ended up not being his movie, you know? And for more information on that, read The Futurist, which is a great book by Rebecca Keegan. But, uh, you know, he went from Terminator to Aliens. And if you watch the world building, the production design, the visual effects in this film, he really is taking what he did with Terminator two years before and cranking it to 11 and just, like, going all out. And it's really impressive sophomore effort uh, from a director, you know? I feel that you have a really good point. There's one scene in the beginning where you can see the visual effects of that particular set design are very practical. You have this sort of glittering, glimmering paint that has been applied to the set. And then later on, you see this totally clean, handcrafted, repetitive perspective building of these different pods on this new spaceship. So it's really interesting to see how he plays with his visual effect levels. Yeah, and if you watch the Blu-ray, which is what we watched, and we watched it in the special edition version because there's at least a five-minute sequence that takes place on the planet with the girl Newt and kind of explains what happened more and what the, what the planet was like before all hell broke loose. If you watch that Blu-ray, you can... I mean, it, it is amazing how clean and, and just gorgeous and just incredible the visual effects uh, look on that Blu-ray. I will say... I will end with this. There's one small fraction of a moment where there's this sort of slight visual reference to The Shining 
and just look for the kid on the big wheel and oh. you will know exactly what I'm talking about when you see gotcha. it. I think the film is solid. I think it's easily one of the ten greatest sequels ever made. It's probably one of the three films, in my estimation, that is superior to the original. I'm really glad I showed it to you, though. Anyway, so that's Aliens. If you haven't seen it, definitely check it out. It is probably one of the only, no, definitely one of the only Alien films worth checking out. Next, we watched a documentary together that we'd seen before, but you had gotten me a copy for my birthday called The Punk Sceneer, which is a documentary from a few years ago about Kathleen Hanna, who was the lead singer of Bikini Kill and La Tigra, and spent some time in my hometown, Olympia, Washington, I think she might have even. I think she even went to Evergreen State College. She did, and she basically started a revolution called Riot Girl, which was carried on in Olympia by another band called Bratmobile. But she she got it really going on in Washington D.C. What are your thoughts on the punk scene? I think that this is a really good documentary. I knew nothing about punk singers. I just know that it's very difficult for me to sometimes listen to their music because it is very raw mm. and it, it does often speak the truth. And so whenever you give me something that is female speaking truth in that kind of music, it kind of hits me really hard. So I have to take that kind of thing in small doses. Otherwise... I'm just going to be a raging bitch with all those emotions and feelings. I have to be very careful with what kind of feminist medium I'm ingesting, if that makes sense. I hope it does. I really love this film because they really take that movement and really show how it started, how it influenced other things, uh, why it started in the first place, and where it is right now. And they interview a lot of different people that were a part of that movement and can speak to it. As we were watching the film again, I got onto the computer and started researching these different women and following them on Instagram because I don't know how new feminists feel, but sometimes I don't know who to follow or who to hear or who to look to. So if you were ever curious about what punk was, if you were ever curious about women speaking out at rock, well, music concerts, this is a good movie for you to watch. It definitely is something I don't think enough people know of, partially because one of the things you learn is the Riot girls were refusing to talk to the media. And they had what was dubbed a media blackout. And so therefore, they weren't getting their message out there as much as they could have, getting the, the entire uh, movement out there as well as they could have. And so it ended up being kind of like this footnote or this blip in rock, 90s rock music history, which is unfortunate because it was a really important blip, I feel like, and it really created... A lot for young girls to look up to and, and, and feel inspired and safe, actually, because 
what Riot Girl movement was, for those who don't know, a rejection of all the chauvinistic attitudes towards women in terms of being able to play music and in terms of being able to know anything about music, but also the sexual assault and mistreatment that women were experiencing in punk and rock concerts and indie concerts. It was all a rejection of that. Also, in addition to not only creating music that was reacting to aggressively those attitudes and uh, behaviors, it also was something that created meetings that were safe places for women to gather and talk and commune and share their stories and their frustrations and things like that, which I feel like is a really important thing. And I wish... I really wish Riot Girl continued beyond this five-year span or what have you that, that uh, it lived on, but it at least inspired other bands like Slater Kinney and, and several others, uh, m- many of which were in Olympia. Proud Olympian right here. Hell yeah. <laughs> Something that's very interesting about this documentary is that it shows life without social media Mm. and how you got your word out and how that affected groups forming fans meetups which i don't think were called meetups back then because that's kind of a now thing and i'm just curious if it were a an online platform we've just recently in the last three weeks had the hashtag me too go viral and i'm just wondering if Riot Girl were in a time like today, how different would it be? Oh, yeah. It's just a, a thought Absolutely. that I have. So that's how well the documentary's made. It really just gives you insight into that time. Yeah, I mean, the documentary is a pretty straightforward documentary as in, the, in its form. I don't think it's a revolutionary or fascinating in that sense, but I think it definitely is an informative one about... A fascinating time and a fascinating pioneer who did a lot that unfortunately not enough people know about. So definitely hunt that documentary down. That's The Punk Sceneer. All right, let's move on to our main event and our review of Thor Ragnarok. It 
main event time. That's from the trailer to Thor Ragnarok, starring Chris Hemsworth, Tom Hiddleston, Kate Blanchett, Anthony Hopkins, and many others. Tessa Thompson, the new Tessa Thompson, newcomer to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll talk more about her, I'm sure. And Thor Ragnarok is about Hela, the goddess of death, coming to destroy Asgard, as Thor is exiled and stuck on a gladiatorial planet where he finds a work buddy. This film is directed by Taika Waititi, a New Zealand director who previously made favorites of Shanna's and ours, What We Do in the Shadows, The Vampire Comedy, and The Hunt for the Wilder People. So what we typically do in our reviews is focus first on what we liked about a movie, then talk about what we didn't like a mo- about a movie, what was the bad, and open it up to general discussion about whether or not the good outweighed the, ba- the bad, before moving into spoilers and final thoughts. So Shanna, you have seen all or most of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, including all three four Thor films. Where does Thor Ragnarok stack up, and what did you like about it? Thor Ragnarok ranks as first out of the three Thor movies for me. I feel like Thor 1 and Thor 2 were really not what one would hope for, but the third one was really satisfying, I thought. I think that Thor is one of these really interesting characters, at least in the movie universe, where he's kind of on the same level for Hulk for me, where I feel like he shouldn't have his a whole movie to himself. I feel like he's a really great side character. But I also think that because he's so sort of like, I feel like he's the class clown and not in a bad way. Really? I, I don't have another word to describe it, but I feel like he is not a very good standalone character in the movie universe. When he has a whole lot of new characters, a whole lot of new concepts, events introduced with him that ties the whole universe together, then I feel like he has a successful movie. But when he's just on Asgard and just on Earth, mm-hmm. I feel like that's not enough for me. I want more. You're a demigod. We should be seeing you traveling. We should see other worlds. We should see hints of other worlds. We should see hints of other cultures, alien races. So this one really does it for me. There's a lot of stuff that I liked. What are your initial thoughts? (laughs) Well, this is definitely the best Thor film. 
I'm not so hard on the first Thor film as you are. I thought that it, while not among the best of the Marvel films, it's somewhere in the middle. It was at the time, I think it was the third or fourth Marvel film, and I thought it was perfectly enjoyable if slightly flawed. Thor Dark World was extremely mediocre. There was a lot there's a few things I enjoyed about it, but it pulled its punches too many times, which really ticked me off. Thor Ragnarok follows up and ties loose ends that Thor Dark World created quite satisfactorily. And most importantly, it justifies Loki's presence really well. And, you know, as, as someone that's still in this frickin' series of films after 16 films, you know, he does not wear out his welcome still after all of that time. I, I, I didn't really think I'd be able to say that, you know? Uh, you'd think after 16 films, a villain would frickin' perish by now, and we'd be able to move on. But, <laughs> you know, I... I with this film, I gladly welcome Tom Hiddleston's presence as Loki. He's the villain that I like. Mm. I, I don't mind seeing him over and over again, and I don't mind seeing him battle between being good and being evil. Yeah, I think because you're not alone in that, that thought is, is why he still has a job <laughs> with Marvel, you know? Like, he's hands down considered the favorite villain of the entire series so far, right? However... Talking about many of the good things about this film, Jeff Goldblum is a delightful presence as the Grandmaster, who's a, kind of a villain. He is the one who controls the gladiatorial planet that we see in the trailers. I think he's even in the trailer. He's just hilarious. I mean, he's just having fun with his own little quirks, his, his, and he's just milking each line with his own little whimsical mannerisms for everything that's worth. And I just loved every minute Jeff Goldblum was on the screen. The rest of the cast is also great. I don't really think there's a weak link. The newcomer Tessa Thompson is a welcome uh, addition. I do wish... There is just a little bit more to her, I, I hope, in future films. I Certainly, I know it's not going to happen in Avengers Infinity War. That thing's just going to be stuffed so much that there's going to be very little character development, let alone for someone like Valkyrie. And, but, and that's okay for yeah. a film every now and again. Yeah, but I do hope that she does get more meat on whatever her next story is, you know? Um, as in terms of character development. Don't think by any means she's wasted, though. I do think she is enjoyable. And she has a welcome attitude. Mark Ruffalo is a blast. Carl Urban, some people would probably barely recognize him. He's a new character named Scourge. I think the less said about him, the better. But I do think, and I don't mean that as a slight against Carl Urban, I just mean his character... Is a, is, a, is a surprise, I think. and But I do think that he does a, a fairly good job for the supporting, for what the script does for him. Kate Blanchett 
haven't even mentioned her yet. She's a fantastic villain. I, I think, you know, people talk about how Marvel has a villain problem, and I really think that Kate Blanchett's the one that <laughs> elevates the, the character. Apparently, Thor's villains are pretty good, you know. Well. Loki's good. She's good. Yeah, but not the not the character in Thor Dark World, Malekith. He's maybe, probably one of the worst. Maybe we could just pretend that didn't happen. <laughs> Fair enough. But Kate Blanchett is, I mean, it's Kate Blanchett for crying out loud. She's not half-assing it here. So I didn't recognize who she was. Really? And I think it's because of the makeup that they gave her. <laughs> the it's mascara? the particular eyeshadow and eyeliner. Mm. So if I feel like I don't want to get recognized in public, I'm totally going to rock that look. And okay. I should be able to hide. Okay, so that's all, quite a bit on the cast. I, I think there's so much more to this movie. There's, there's a lot to this movie. They packed so much stuff in a two-hour, ten-minute runtime. I couldn't believe everything I was seeing. Everything on the Gladiator world is a blast. The cold open with Thor in the middle of one of his adventures is so much fun. And the humor that Taika Waititi injects in this film is brilliant and absolutely welcome, especially after something that was a little too serious uh, in Thor Dark World. Just a total freaking soap opera pressing. Uh, it was just really... Yeah. Anyway, this was, this was a, a very welcome, very refreshing entry. And, you know, actually, like, this whole year of all the Marvel movies have been very, like, light and funny and fun and action-y. You know, you got Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which I, I didn't think was the best out of all of them. Then you had Spider-Man Homecoming. And then you have this one. You know, all of them are really funny movies and really fun movies. And I didn't expect, I wasn't. Of all three of them, Thor was not the one I was looking forward to the most. But it might have been the best of the three. I felt like this was much more playful than the other films. I feel like Thor is the character you get to do that with. Versus if you had a Black Widow film or a Captain America. Mm. You just get the sense that those are just such so much more heavy Well, not characters. Iron Man, though. Well, Iron Man's just an egotistical jerk most of the time. Yeah, he has a heart under that like terrible exterior, but but he's very witty, and he's been he's been the character that's been really fun. But he's egotistical. So, I'm saying Thor isn't egotistical. He's not just, anymore. That was the lesson. Fine. That was the lesson of the original movie, right? He was totally arrogant, and he needed to be hum- humbled, right? That, that was the entire story of the first film. You know, he got cast yeah, out. Yeah, it's like know. what should have happened to Iron so, Man, but it didn't. Yeah, well. <laughs> but, and yeah. I really appreciated the fun set design. Mm-hmm. It was so colorful and playful. And, again, it's like something that'll work for Thor. I like the banter when Thor is dangling and can't see who's talking to him. And they're having this fairly serious conversation. This is in the cold open. Yeah, so this isn't a spoiler, ladies and gentlemen. So he's dangling from a string, and he can't see the person talking to him. So he says, stop, stop, I'm coming around. I'll I'll see you just in a minute, you know. 
And that's like really, you see the character that, you know, they're chatting together and he's like annoyed. (laughs) Right. But he feels like Thor has a point, so he's going to stop, you know? And what I really liked about that is that it shows, it brings about this concept of this is who I am. I'm a hero. It's a job. It's, it's not, I feel like it brings about this concept of this is who I am. And I take being a hero very serious. It's a lifestyle. It's not a job. I don't have an on off button. And it was just really interesting. That theme, I'm going to get to my favorite part. There's this wonderful theme that's throughout the movie, from the beginning through to the end. Thor is constantly saying, because that's what heroes do. And it just reminds me of Moana, how she draws strength from saying who she is. Hers is a little different. She's saying, I am Moana, and she's singing it. But Thor is kind of doing the same thing here. And I feel like that's really important to mention and to include in movies. It makes them you know, that much more empowering for people to see because if people are trying to find their empowerment, if people are trying to find confidence, they're going to find it in this theme that Disney seems to be displaying throughout these different films. Well, I think you might be overstating it a little bit in this movie. I mean, it's not like you see Thor ever on a boat, you know, hanging off the bow saying, I am Thor, or anything like that. Yeah, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there's this theme that seems to run between these two movies and they're just depicted differently. Hmm. He is very freely brushing it off his shoulder, kind of like, I have to do this thing because that's what heroes do. And yeah, it's not a musical, but it is a recurring thing that he says. He says it about three or four times. I, I didn't catch that at all. That's interesting. Yeah, you know, going back to your point about the beginning, though, like the, the cold open, the the comedic timing on on this film is just just uh, brilliant. You know, it really keeps it keeps things moving. It keeps it keeps things moving, but also it keeps you on your toes and and it's exciting. You know, it adds so much to these movies, you know, Occasionally, you hear the the criticism of, you know, um, all these superhero movies are the same, and I'm tired of them. But Marvel just keeps finding ways to make them not the same. And I feel like, you know, you got movies like Civil War, and you have the Guardians of the Galaxy, and then you have this, and they're... They are also the perfect antidote to what DC and Warner Brothers is doing right now. It's like Marvel is like saying, we, we know how to do this. We figured out how you do this. You keep it fun. You keep it humorous, you know, while still maintaining all the little nuggets of what makes the character who they are and the comics as beloved as they are and integrating some of the stories from the comics. And this does integrate some of the stories that, you know, you can see from the trailer. Uh, Planet Hulk is is introduced, essentially. Planet Sakaar with Gladiator Hulk and such. Which is really fun. I, I There's a lot of things about Hulk that's not in the trailer in this movie. So you we'll save some it. of that till spoiler. 
But it is actually one of the things that makes this film as, as successful as it is, I think. And I think, Lens, to your point, I, I don't necessarily agree with what you're saying about Thor being better as a supporting character, but I definitely think that's the case with Hulk. And I think this match, you know, the, playing this chess match of pairing different characters together over 16 movies, I think this match with Thor and Hulk is is perfect, you know? And I think it's one that we saw brilliantly as far back as the original Avengers, you know, with that famous punchline, so that visual punchline of them working <laughs> together and then suddenly Hulk, Hulk smashes Thor in the face, you know? It's kind of cool because between the two of them, they're the ones that can physically handle each other. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. So was there anything else that you really enjoyed uh, that's, that uh, you want to share before we uh, move on to what you didn't like about the movie? I enjoyed the injection of different cultural humor. So the New Zealand humor that was sprinkled here and there throughout the film. I so believe in including the humor of other countries because it's different and Sometimes people won't get it, and sometimes people will. Case in point, Charlotte Copley playing himself, essentially, a South African man, in what was that film where they shoot each other? Free Fire from this past spring. Yeah. Some people are going to get that, and some people aren't. And I just think it's really good. I wish there was more of that, and I feel like the platform of Alien Planets, its directors should be taking advantage of that platform. Hmm. All right, so what didn't you like about the movie? What didn't work for you? I liked the villain, but I wanted more. However, for the amount of time that they had, I felt like they did a good job kind of rushing through her development, why she was the way she was, and why she would be a villain. It isn't spoon-fed to you. You do have to pay attention to what's going on. Um, you don't think it's spoon-fed to you? It's not spoon-fed to you really you have to keep up i thought she literally spelled it out for us what was going on with her look personally when there's a new villain introduced i want to know their life story when did daddy hurt you you know did mommy support you i want to know the whole thing <laughs> were you nice before daddy hurt you that's what I want to know. And they don't go into that, that history. Whereas if you think about Loki, you get to see a lot. I disagree completely. I think they talk a, a great deal about her past and what, uh, what her beef was, which I can't get into until we get into spoilers. Yes, we'll just have to wait for that. Yeah, I, I don't think there's anything subtle about her. And I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I just I just don't think, like... It's highbrow of character developments here. The other thing I did not like that I did not appreciate was the beginning scenes, the world that you find Thor in, the editing of the characters and the environment is not pristine. What I mean by that is obviously they're filming against a green screen and you're supposed to cut the character out and place it on the new background Unfortunately, this was not done in a pristine, clean way, and that really bothered me, and 
it'll bother people whose eyes are trained that way and it will also bother people who are slightly trained in that world my mother could pick up that something was wrong and when I you know told her afterwards she was like oh yeah that makes total sense so that was something I didn't like I, f I feel like you had this whole visual technicians and you you could have you know cleaned that up a bit you're talking about in the cold open yeah yeah and there's definitely you look through the uh, credits there's definitely no shortage of uh, visual artists yeah whichever department was responsible for that particular scene shame on you that was laziness try again <laughs> i'm thinking right now and i'm not sure if there was very much that i took issue with uh, in the film i at least I can talk to talk about at this point. Primarily, I do think that Valkyrie was awesome, but in hindsight, when I'm thinking about it, forty eight hours later, I probably could have used more of her on the page. It's it's not something that kills or ruins the movie for me or anything. I just thought, yeah, like you know, she's satisfying. She's really good. What we are, what we do get out of her, but you know, yeah, there could have been a little bit more. And I understand there was a deleted scene that did have more of her, but from what I have heard described about that scene, I'm kind of glad that it was deleted because it would have slowed the pace in the movie and it wasn't necessary. It wasn't quite necessary. It's not the kind of... It's not what I'm looking for when I'm saying I could have used more of her, if that makes sense. I want to see more of her. There better be more of her soon. Yeah. So, I, and I know she has proposed to Marvel some all-female movie, which I don't know much about, but, like, the idea that I've heard is it's her and Black Widow and Wasp or someone teaming together. It's like, oh, Gamora, I think, maybe. That would be awesome. I could think of so many ideas about that. Throwing Grimora's sister for a little bit. That could be fun, too. <laughs> like, this could be really fun. <laughs> please do that, please. Yeah, I don't know. We'll we'll see if that becomes a thing. Anyway, well, do you have any other general thoughts about the movie? Any, any parts that we didn't talk about? Anything that we overlooked? I have a minor irritation. It's not a deal-breaker. You know, after watching Guardians of the Galaxy 2, there were a lot of post-credit sequences. I think there were five in total. Yeah, a little too many, I think. Oh, well, I... No. I am <laughs> totally grateful for the abundance mm. of that. And then in this one, you only really got two. So it just... Like, if you just gave me three, I would have been good. I would have been like, oh, oh, good. Like, I'm not having withdrawals from that. Mm. So that's the, that's the only minor irritation. Interesting. I, I was completely the opposite. I thought the Guardians of the Galaxy was way too much and offered very little in reward. Whereas this, you, you it goes back to the two post-credit scenes, and I found one to be sati more satisfying than the other. But we can talk more about that when we get into spoilers. I just want to finish up general discussion by saying... For those who haven't seen the film, it's definitely worth checking out. If you're a fan of the Marvel series at all, you will love this, absolutely. 
if you're not a fan of the Marvel series, it might not convert you. You might be lost in the whole thing. But it is a lot of fun. I would probably give this film an 8 out of 10. Maybe a 7 out of 10. How about you, Shanna? I may have to agree with your rating. With that, shall we move on to spoilers? Yes, let's. Alright. So, be warned, if you haven't seen Thor Ragnarok, skip ahead to film faves, as we are about to get into spoilers for Thor Ragnarok right now. Alright, Shanna. You have been warned. What did you want to talk about? Oh, maybe we could start with Stan Lee. Okay. What about Stan Lee? Oh, I appreciated his character, and I really liked seeing Thor whine like a little baby. Like, please, kind sir, don't yeah. cut my hair. Oh. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was that was cute. That was cute. Gosh, let's see here. I, I First of all, I guess when Mark Ruffalo appeared, I thought, like, that was very interesting, learning and realizing that Banner hasn't come out in two years, and Hulk is taking over and may completely take over. I think that's an interesting little nugget that I hope they they develop and pick up more um, well, later was, on. What was nice about that was you could actually see Hulk was becoming more of like a, a being. Yeah. So I think you have a really great point there, that he was more than just a buffoon. Yeah, I yeah. kind of like that Banner was away for two years. Okay, so in this film, though, we have a lot of death and destruction, right? Which, um... Cleansing? Cleansing. (laughs) You know, I'm kind of glad, like, you know, you have a character who's supposedly the goddess of death. So you better damn well up the stakes and actually have some death. Granted, it's a lot of PG-13 very clean deaths, you know? There's uh, not not much to them. A lot of um, stabbings and things. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I guess. It's just very sanitized. However, shocking at times, uh, not only do you have the death of Odin, which was odd for me watching it when it happened. It was like, what the hell just happened to Odin? Why did he just die? You're looking at me puzzled. Well, he looked ancient. I mean, I know he's like <laughs> this like demigod or god. Yeah. But... Did you really think he was going to live forever? Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's lived this long Demi so far. gods don't get to live forever. But also, like, at least there to be a reason why he died, aside from maybe Anthony Hopkins being tired of playing the role or something. Uh, you know, there's this line that he says that he's on a new path now. I think it was honestly just moving out of the way for Thor. Hmm. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, we Thor does become king, um, ultimately, and accept his his place as the next line of succession. But we actually learn that there's an older sibling that would be technically the rightful heir to the throne, right? And that is Hera. She, Hela, I mean, she is apparently Thor's blood sister, who ruled with Odin, had a little bit of a nasty streak. Well, Odin was dark back then, too. I think it's important to mention that. Apparently. I wish that was a little bit more developed, because we only hear it from her perspective, really. 
Well, that's but... kind of what I was talking about earlier. Oh, can you explain? It would have been helpful to have a flashback or two where, you know, children are really innocent. They're a clean slate. Mm. And then something happens that will turn them into whatever. She turned into a really dirty slate, you know. And it would have been good to have seen whose fault was that? At what point should she have changed herself? Did she just love the darkness? I mean, she is the, what, the goddess of death. death. I mean, her father kind of created her, probably made her that way. So in a way, it's like, well, that's not really her fault. Well, see, I I thought you were going to say something else. See, I, I actually didn't need explanation of her path because I got a clear indication that she just grew a thirst over time for death and it it, it became out of control, right? Well, I mean, if she didn't have that thirst for death, like at what point, for me it's very, it's very upsetting. I guess it's kind of one of the things I have against the film is at what point did she become goddess of death? Like, could she have been goddess of the passing? Like, something a little more, <laughs> you know, non-bloodthirsty. Like, I, I don't know what I'm asking for, but, like, I needed something more to establish her villainy. And yet, I needed more to establish Odin's history with her really we should be looking at odin and his fathering skills well no what i mean is if he was in a path where he was totally fine ruling the nine realms the way that he was with hella what caused him to to do an about face and become more benevolent 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 What's the word? I can't say it. <laughs> well, he was a benevolent god, I understood, while he was with Hela. Really? But then he said this one line where... No, it wasn't even him. It was Hela said, and then they had you. And she looked at Thor, and it was almost like when he had Thor, it was like, oh, we've got a clean slate. Mm. Let's just go ahead and redo things here, things that I couldn't do with Hela. Oh, okay. look, an abandoned child. Let me take this one on, too. Uh, okay. So... Uh, okay, I didn't catch on to that. Okay. That's interesting. That's interesting. So th- we have the death of Odin, but we also have the death of the Warriors 3, which I did not see coming at all. I thought it was quite shocking. Why did they do that? It, it didn't affect me emotionally, however... I feel like it was unnecessary. I didn't feel like you needed to do that. Really? I think it, it made a lot of sense, story-wise, because she needed to get rid of anyone that would be in her way. And imagine if the story had them in the end. First of all, how is it that they would have survived all this time? And, and second of all, how is it that they didn't stop her all this time, you know? I, I think it makes sense that she would have surprised them and, and killed them instantly. It just like, it happens so fast, except yeah. for the one. The one, who is Hogan. We see him try to lead the Odin's army against her. That doesn't go very well. 
interestingly enough, Lady Sif is not in this movie, which I found shocking and perplexing. I have no idea where the hell she would be if not on Asgard. And so they better do some serious writing to explain that. Uh, it, it ends up being quite significant that she's away. But I, I got the impression that in the original script, uh, she, she, the, the actress wasn't able to commit to the movie because of um, her TV role uh, and scheduling conflicts. Uh, but I got the impression that in the original script, and I could be wrong, I'd be interested if I, if, uh, I am, um, she was what she did what Hogan does. Like, I got the impression that all three of the guys die instantly when Hela arrives on Asgard. And it's actually Lady Sif that probably was the one who originally led Odin's army against Hela. And it would have probably been this interesting battle between Hela and Lady Sif, ending with Lady Sif tragically dying. I would be interested if, I, if I'm wrong about that. I've heard another theory that uh, suggests that Lady Sif was the Valkyrie role, but that makes less sense to me considering how much is written about Valkyrie in the movie and how organic she is to the whole gladiator planet, Sakaar. At any rate, we get to see Sif in the future uh, movies somehow. So there's that. Heimdall does escape death. I totally was expecting him to die, though. Remember, I turned to you. I would have been really pissed. Yeah. Uh, because she talks about how there's got to be a sacrifice, right? And so I thought the movie was going to totally follow through with that, and somebody we already know was going to be sacrificed, or executed, I should say. Not sacrificed. And I was like, I bet Heimdall's going to be executed, you know, on behalf of the people of Asgard. Did not work out that way. Do not kill Idris Alba. <laughs> it will not bode well for you. Question, though. Where the hell was Heimdall during the final battle? He was with the people. On the Rainbow Bridge? Yeah. No, I mean, like, after they got trapped and everything, like, like he wasn't fighting with Thor. Wait, where? When the ship comes down. To and the people are getting the there. Asgardians off? Yeah. He was helping the Asgardians get on, and he was oh, fighting okay. on the other side. Okay. So he was fighting the other side. Hulk was fighting the dog. Yeah, and the other three were fighting towards Hela. Okay, I forgot about that. I, I guess I just assumed that he'd be a little bit more engaged and proactive in the, the main fight that was going on. But No, I think his... I mean, if you think about the methodology, the, the mythicalness of his character, yeah. I think he's meant to be like this... Entirely this side character. Mm. Uh, even when it comes to fighting. Yeah. Heimdall was exiled, for whatever reason, by Loki to probably pretty much get him out of the way. Um, he went under hiding really funny. in the mountains. <laughs> and it turns out that Heimdall ended up being the one responsible for saving the people of Asgard from Hela. Well, harboring them. Like R- refugees. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the end of the movie, continuing the theme of death and destruction, Hela is, of course, stronger as long as she's in Asgard, right? So she's you know, uh, uh, impossible to beat as long as she's in Asgard, right? But, so because of that, Thor unleashes this demon from the beginning of the movie. I can't remember his name. I don't know if I ever got his name. And he's destroyed... His whole mission is the opposite, is to destroy Asgard. 
So he's doing that, and Asgard essentially blows up along with Hela, and Asgardians are um, have have escaped. Uh, what do you think about that development of Asgard uh, essentially being destroyed? It's death and destruction, as you said, and I'm okay with that world coming to an end and a new world beginning and you can also draw parallels to the real world with it because now they're kind of the Asgardians are refugees and where are they going to land are they going to land on earth is earth going to take these refugees like there can be a slight parallel well that's all in question now because uh, the first post-credit sequence was the Gauntlet ship boy. Well, the ship with all the Asgardian survivors comes across Thanos's ship. So, are they going to survive? That's that's what I we would be annoyed next. if the whole race got torn apart in a new movie. If they did that in this movie, I'd be like, oh, lots of death and destruction, lots and lots of it to go around. You get some destruction, and you get some destruction. We all get destruction. But if they had to do it in a new movie, I'm going to be pissed. Hmm. Well, it does seem like Thor Ragnarok does help set the stage for Infinity War, which I think is uh, the next movie after Black Panther. I think Black Panther is... Oh, it's going to be so great! Sure. But what Black Panther is probably going to do is give us a breather. As a new origin, separate sto- separate story of what's going on. Maybe and maybe then, we'll see Storm. I don't know. I can only hope. Pretty sure we won't because she's owned by Fox right now. Maybe she won't be for too much longer. Well, I think you'll probably see other other characters you'll love instead. At any rate, though, maybe they'll just throw her in there. Uh-huh. You never know. Uh huh. Okay. Well, you keep holding on to that. And we'll move, the rest of us will move on to the fact that Infinity War is next after Black Panther. The whole thing that all of these movies have been leading up to, which is the bout against Thanos and his quest for all these Infinity Stones uh, to be part of his Infinity Gauntlet, so that way he can have all the power and all the galaxy and destroy things. That's very exciting. I'll be... Uh, Really looking forward to it because I think there's something like 20 or 30 characters in that movie. Captain Marvel isn't going to feature in that issue. I, I think that's unlikely. I think her... Because she has her own thing. Her first film comes out after Infinity War. So I wonder if there's going to be like all this death and destruction again. And if Captain Marvel is going to be this kind of nurturing healing balance to whatever is going to happen. I am predicting the future. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I really see Captain Marvel, the character, as a healer. I know I know nothing about her. And, and a lot of people don't. So it's very exciting that she's coming to the screen. We know nothing about the movie at this point, um, except that Brie Larson is starring as Carol Danvers, and Sam Jackson's likely to make an appearance as Nick Fury. Okay, so Jeff has the page open here, and every time I see Sam Jackson's name, I'm like, oh my god! And then I remember, oh wait, but you've been in all the others. But it's so exciting! You're in another movie! Ah!" 
Very good. <laughs> but we don't know anything uh, really about the movie. We know that Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck are uh, directing the film. That that duo you may know from directing such uh, movies before as it's kind of a funny story and Sugar and Mississippi Grind. I have not seen any of those movies myself, but I've heard heard good things about Sugar and Mississippi Grind. So maybe that's some prep that we have to do before we see the film in two years. I don't know. But yeah, we'll see what happens next. Then there is another final post credit sequence, and I figured this one's like the most frivolous, and you can, you can pretty much do without it. It's like one last sequence with Jeff Goldblum as the Grandmaster, bumbling about after the fall of his planet, due to a revolution and he's like hey congratulations on your revolution of course you couldn't have done it without me because you needed to revolt you need to have me to revolt you know i don't know i was like Haw. they should have put that one first and put the other one at the end yeah i agree actually i completely agree because especially when you're waiting around for like five minutes or something of credits you kind of want something that's going to be completely satisfying you have to have the serious one at the end and the playful one at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. It's it, it, I, I, Actually, I didn't think about that, but that actually makes way more sense and feels way more satisfying and way more exciting because then you're looking forward to the next thing. Yeah, it's like pumping you up, whereas this one was kind of like, oh, we're being pulled back into Thorna Ragnarok. We're not even, Yeah. you know. And it just feels, for me... It's just another one of those post credit scenes that's just really use- useless, ultimately. It doesn't really do anything or give us anything. Did you enjoy it? You know, it was kind of like this cute extra. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel like a post credit scene. Mm. You know, I I come back to Guardians of the Galaxy 2 because, because there were so many options that we were given. You know, one filled a fan theory, one brought about this whole new extra level with Adam. Uh, the fan theory was, of course, Stanley being, a, is it a watcher or an observer? What is it called? Oh, in this the universe? watcher. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so you got two things satisfied. You got to see something hilarious about a character, a group as a teenager, which, please, I don't want to see that, actually, in a, mo- a full-length movie. Right, right, I'm right, good. right, right. What was the other two? <sighs> But what I'm saying is it hit different levels, Mm. whereas this, you know, was kind of weird. I don't know who was editing, but maybe if it was the other way around, it would have been fine. Yeah, yeah. But I wanted more. Well, at any rate, did you have anything more you'd like to say about Thor Ragnarok? No, it was super colorful and we'll be buying it. So there you go. Awesome. All right. What did you think about Thor Ragnarok? Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. I think it's way past time for us to move on to our next section, which is Film Faves. Film Faves 2005 for this episode. Film Faves is inspired by a section of the blog, The Gibson Review, where I would count down my 12 favorite films from a particular year. Why 12? Because most lists do 5, 10, and then some honorable mentions. We just cut right to the chase. And this is our list. The purpose of Film Faves is to give you an idea of our tastes in movies, but also hopefully expose you to things you haven't heard of before or seen. As such, 
We try to point you in the direction of where you can find these movies when they are available on Netflix, HBO Now, Hulu, and Amazon Prime. Unfortunately, a lot of the movies that we love aren't available on the streaming sites at the time, but we do try to point it out when they are. So, with that, Shanna, how did you go about making your list of 2005 favorite films? So I went about doing my list as best as I could. 2005 was uh, an interesting year for me. It was my last year of high school. So there's a little bit of playful stuff in here. There's a little bit of uh, crazy stuff in there. And maybe you're going to wonder why the hell is that on her list. But it'll be a surprise until we find out. I am noticing a trend. Before I met you... I had really weird tastes in movies, and now I have met you and been with you and blah, 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 and my lists are great. And before that, uh, my lists are pretty shit. <laughs> okay. Uh, for me, I just included three movies that were among the top ten high gr- highest grossing films of the year, and a couple award winners uh, ended up on my list, and also only about three or four films from my 12 actually ended up being on available to stream right now. Shanna, what was your number 12? My number 12 is Hard Candy. This was a film that you showed me early in our relationship, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It has... Ellen Page and Patrick... Oh, what's his name? Wilson. Patrick Wilson. It's a great film, and it's best if you don't know anything about it. Uh, what you should know is it's that it's kind of like a thriller, kind of a little bit of body horror, I guess. But I got through it, so those who are sensitive, you could probably get through it too. I will say it does feature an astounding performance by Ellen Page, who I think was only about 17 at the time, or something like that. And is very impressive. Yes, I think that's why it's on my list. Very cool. My number 12 is Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which, yeah, is basically Lord of the Rings light, but (laughs) is also the best of all the Narnia films. I thought not only are the visuals really cool, I mean, like, as a fantasy, it's really engaging and really exciting. Uh, I thought, yeah, I... I never actually read the, the Narnia stories growing up. <gasps> wait, wait, you did not? Uh, no, no, I've never actually read Lord of the Rings either. However, my childhood was surrounded much more by the Narnia films as my brother was a fan and, and uh, sorry, the Narnia books. My brother was a fan and there was like a cartoon adaptation or something at that time that we saw in the library a lot. But uh, anyway... This was a really, really cool adaptation. I liked the characters quite a bit. I thought the, the fantasy action and everything was quite entertaining. Character development was uh, done very well. I cared about the teenagers and the kids to an extent, much more than I do as they get old, much more than I did when they got older in the other films. Uh, but yeah, a very good fantasy film. And it just made my list at number 12. And it's available on HBO now. My number 11 is Sahara. And some of you may be thinking, what? 
But just remember that it's Matthew McConaughey, my would have been husband if I, you know, ever met him. And I just feel like I need to mention this one because there are a couple of scenes that were filmed in South Africa. And it's kind of this silly, well, let's just be honest, stupid fun treasure hunt movie. And the best part of it is Matthew McConaughey and for a South African, a couple scenes that you can recognize. Awesome. Very cool. My number 11 is Murder Ball, which I think takes the place of the soul documentary slot on my list. I was always really taken by this story about paraplegic, paraplegic Olympic level rugby athletes. They call the sport murder ball, essentially, and these guys in these wheelchairs, they crash into each other. They're really rough. I mean, and you get to get to know a handful of these players and their history and, and how they don't really want any pity. They don't want, like, people to look down on them. They have fun. They, they're perfectly able, and, and, and they have uh, really fulfilled lives. Even after their accidents or what have you that, that's made them paraplegics. It's just a really great story and a really inspiring one. And I think you will be glad you got the chance to get to know these people in this, in this film. And that's Murder Ball, which I highly recommend. My number 10 is Chronicles of Narnia, which is available, as Jeff said, on HBO. I grew up with the BBC produced version, which was happening around 1988. So I was very excited when this beautiful visual feast and special effects came about. It is an exciting adventure based on the C.S. Lewis book. I have also not read it, but I'm not really a reader, so no shame on me. Jeff's, <laughs> <laughs> Jeff's the English major. And it's taking place either World War One or World War Two, where the four siblings are living in England, at, well, London, I suppose, because they're sent out of the city, which was, you know, a common thread of storytelling. It also happens in Bedknobs and Broomsticks. And they begin this wonderful fantasy adventure into another world, and they become these different people. They discover who they are. It's a very exciting film, and I highly recommend it. I mean, I'd even show it to, like, maybe my five or six-year-old girl, because there are two especially empowering female characters. They do find their empowerment. They start off not knowing, which is great, showing that journey. And I think the, the villainess is pretty good, too. I mean, she's mm -hmm. pretty determined, uh, pretty organized and strict with her goal. So that's my number 10. Yeah, that's a really good performance by Tilda Swinton there, too. My number 10 is Sin City. A film that probably would have ranked much higher on my list closer to 2005, but has since kind of fallen a little bit down on, on, in favor. This is the uh, film directed by Robert Rodriguez that starred Mickey Rourke, Jessica Alba, Elijah Wood, and a, a slew of other people that was remarkable. It combined three different Frank Miller Sin City stories, The Hard Goodbye, That Yellow Bastard, oh, Bruce Willis is in this movie, by the way. Yeah. And I can't remember the third one off the top of my head. Well, but I forget that Tobey Maguire's in it. Is that what you said? No, Elijah Wood. Oh, sorry, Elijah Wood. Sorry, Elijah. Tell yeah, you me. had me thinking <laughs> sorry. that for a second. I was like, Tobey Maguire's in this? I forget that he's in it. It's just this little sweet face. Elijah Wood. Yeah, not so sweet yeah. in this film, which was no. 
amazing and incredible after all those years of, with the Lord of the Rings. It was hard for me to watch. <laughs> this film was shot all on stage in Robert Rodriguez's studio in Austin, Texas. Everything was added in post-production. It was um, basically taking what Skycap and then the World of Tomorrow did, I think the year before, and did it better. And Robert also left the Directors Guild so that way Frank Miller could get credit as a co-director, which I thought was a testament to Robert's loyalty to the source material. And actually, if you were to take the book and put it to the screen, you would see like almost shot-for-shot mirrors of what's in the uh, graphic novels. It's remarkable. That's really beautiful to hear. Uh, I want to see more of what this person is. Of course, Bruce Willis's segment and Mickey Rourke's segment are probably the highlights and the best. Yeah, it's 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 a great film. Don't watch the sequel. I was really looking forward to the sequel. It took. I think it just took too long to get out there, and the material just suffered as a result. But this one from two thousand five is worthwhile. You can find it right now on HBO now. My number nine is Madagascar. And again, you might be thinking, what? But I absolutely adore the I Like to Move It song. I also enjoy the voice acting. It's not excellent animation by any stretch of the imagination, but it's fun if you're sick and can't concentrate. It's a group of zoo animals that are on a boat being transported somewhere else and they get stranded on an island off off of the African continent called Madagascar. And let's face it, I'm a sucker for things that don't get depicted enough. And Madagascar is one of those things. Mm. The score was done by Hans Zimmer. And this is one of my favorite because it's it's kind of got this really fun, like silly, but spy element to it. It's like they, he took mm. spy music and gave this fun characteristic to it, which I thoroughly enjoy. Was the, I like to move it, move it from that one or one of the sequels? Yes. So how that song has evolved is that's where it began and it was pretty neutral. It was just really, I like to move it, move it. And it was really fun. Mm -hmm. But then the second one came and, you know, that takes place on, within the African continent. I think they go to Kenya. But I could be wrong, so don't kill me. It's always Kenya as far as Americans yes, are concerned. Yes, because apparently that's the only other country that exists. So, not bitter at all from South Africa. They gave it an African spin and a deeper voice, and the drums are more in there. So kind of this, you know, traditional African sound to it. And then in the third one, they made it really, like, electronic. Oh, I didn't remember it in the third one. I just remember the clown... What was it? The the zebra song? The with the with the Oh you're right. It was instead of having the I like to move it, it was the that what well, was the same sort of tempo. Dot 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 a little Afro circus. Afro circus, yeah. So it was it was still the song, but it was kind of torn apart. Hmm. Very cool. My number nine is Wes Craven's Red Eye. I think this is one of Wes Craven's only PG-13 films, and it's one of his only films that's a thriller, not a horror film. And it is incredibly effective. We recently rewatched it 
in preparations for this list. Rachel McAdams is great in it. Killian Murphy is just just deliciously. I mean, he he goes He's from such a good bad guy. Yeah, he goes from being really charismatic to being just <laughs> seething, you know. Especially by the end of the film, he's uh, he's determined to get his job done. It, it's it's also a post uh, terrorist <laughs> film, and that's kind of interesting. It, but, is it? It uh, didn't feel like security was high at all. Well, that may be, but wait, wait, wait. post. I mean, this is 2005. Okay. And, and so Wes Craven's definite... Four years. Sorry, jeez. Wow. Um, Wes Craven's definitely playing with uh, some of the, the feelings of the time, you know, take, making a terrorist plot the central focus of the story, you know. I don't think that's necessarily the most interesting part of the movie. I think the most interesting part is really the, the interaction between Killian Murphy and Rachel McAdams, their chemistry, so to speak, is is spectacular. I think this is one of Wes Craven's best movies, probably easily in his top five of his entire career. If you are a fan of his work, you definitely need to seek this one out. It, um, I think it's overlooked too often and not talked about enough. Uh, that's Red Eye. That's my number nine. My number eight is Batman Begins. We all know who Batman is, and I'm sure everyone is familiar with previous Batman films. I love the mature darkness of this of the cinematography in this one, and as well as the storytelling. To me, it felt like they weren't holding back. I'm sure you could go even darker with Batman. Batman's just one of those characters that... It's interesting to see the different interpretations of who he is by these different filmmakers. And the soundtrack is forever stuck in my brain. I hear like maybe two seconds of any song from that film. And I know that it's Batman Begins. My number eight is Brokeback Mountain by Ain Lee. That's your number seven? Oh, okay. Well, let's talk about this movie together because you just is a new discovery for you. Yeah. First of all, I'll say that this movie hit me like a ton of bricks back in 2005. <clears throat> it was robbed of the best picture title. It is the best picture of that year. Beautifully told. It's simply, it's a movie that said before it was even a term, love is love. At a time when it was absolutely crucial because the debate in the United States of same-sex marriage was roaring at that time and Bush, President Bush, was not having it. Unfortunately, same-sex marriage wouldn't be legalized for several more years under Obama's administration. Brokeback Mountain was definitely unwittingly an artistic statement that was uh, necessary for its time. But more importantly, the performances specifically by Heath Ledger is just absolutely heartbreaking. It, it's restrained. It's, 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 it's superb. And the cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. This is a film that is much more than a punchline. It is a film that deserves respect and adoration and just admiration and love. Uh, what were your thoughts of the film? I don't know why it took me so long to watch this film. It may have something to do with there being a lot of intolerance 
of gay people in South Africa at that time, even though gay marriage was legal in South Africa at the time this movie came out, people were still very intolerant of that. Of that. And the best part about this film is it takes you through their lives and it proves to you no one wins when someone or something controls who you get to love. The person suffers, the spouse that would inevitably be met happens, the kids suffer, the parents suffer, society loses. Everybody loses when you control gets to love who. And it's just, it left me in a very sad place because I do sort of forget that there was this control over people who identified with a certain sexuality. And it reminds me that there is still that kind of thing that exists, this intolerance of people. It doesn't matter, especially when love is involved. Love is a beautiful thing and you shouldn't be telling people not to love. So there's my little, little high horse. I thought it was a fantastic movie. I recommend it to everyone. Very cool. So that was your number seven. And my number seven is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is available on HBO now. I'm a big fan of the book by Douglas Adams. It is absolutely hilarious and makes me laugh out loud. So I was looking forward to the film adaptation, which starred Alan Rickman and Zoe Deschanel and Sam Rockwell, as well as Martin Freeman and Mos Def. I thought this film adapted the book as best as possible. It was hilarious. It has these wonderful asides that you are just kind of wondering, how the hell are they going to adapt this part of the movie? Well, this is how they adapt, or this part of the book. And well, this is how they adapt it. And it is brilliant. It's hilarious. I love it. It's such a fun film. I don't know. I If you love the book, I don't know how you can't enjoy this film, uh, to some degree at least. I think it's uh, it's rather underrated. I don't think it's a great film or anything like that, but it's pretty solid and pretty enjoyable, and uh, I wish they had continued and made the other films as well, as this film does leave you with that feeling like we're going to see more adventures of this crew. It was not meant to be, uh, unfortunately, but at least we have this, and it's a lot of fun. You can check it out on HBO if you haven't already. My number six is King Kong. I thought this was a visual spectacle. It stars Jack Black. It also stars... Andy Serkis as King Kong. And Naomi Watts. Again, Andy Serkis deserves an award. At, if not for this, then something else. Pick one. Anyone. And they decide that they're going to... You know, there's this sort of remake of the film, as I understand. And they kind of take it to this like Hollywood-esque point of view where Jack Black is a director and he's going to make a movie no matter what, no matter how much it costs, no matter what. Like It's like this obsessive love for filmmaking, which is kind of fun to see. He will find stardom no matter what. And it just so happens that King Kong is like the main spectacle. Okay. My number six is Wedding Crashers starring <gasps> Owen Wilson. What? And, yeah. And Vince Vaughn. And Rachel McAdams. I think this was... This one was a of, good year for her. 
Yeah, I think. It was, actually, now that you say that. I think this was maybe the first movie I saw with her, and I, I think I fell in love with her quite quickly. Isla Fisher is also quite irresistible in this movie, but also <laughs> hilarious. She makes me laugh out loud so hard. But so does Vince Vaughn and how he responds to Isla Fisher in it. Because I'll find you. Oh my gosh. Just so great. This movie is hilarious. It is just, it's just brilliant. And Christopher Walken's in it as well. The, the dinner scene at the table, at the family dinner, I was laughing so hard in the theater during that scene. We should watch scene. that together. Yeah, We've it's, never done that. Oh, uh, I'm surprised. It's, uh, I'm surprised we didn't watch it when we were marching up to our wedding. Hilarious film. Definitely worth uh, seeking out. The Wedding Crashers is my number six. My number five is Red Eye. It's the best thriller ever. It's not terrifying. It's really? Well, I think it is. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm forgetting something, but we'll find out later. Two wonderful star actors. I don't like spoiling it. Jeff kind of talked about it. I think you should go in not knowing very much about it. Just know that it takes place on a plane. And I completely forgot about, you know, the, the terrorism linked with flying but it also goes based off of the fear of flying too and you are kind of trapped so there's not really much you can do to get out of a flight situation it has a really great trailer too actually that starts out as like a rom-com and then like (laughs) halfway through it turns on you um definitely youtube that trailer like what the movie does yeah it's pretty cool my number five we're in the top five now Kung Fu Hustle, which is available on Hulu by Stephen Chow. This film is brilliant. It combines Kung Fu films with superhero films, with Looney Tunes cartoons, with the hero's journey. It's it's so much packed into this two-hour film. And it is amazing. It's got awesome kung fu and and superpower action in it the characters are hilarious in it Stephen chow is no exception as uh the main character does have a scene or two that's just a little too violent for anyone who's under the age of 15 so just be cautioned if you do i, th- I think you could conceivably watch it with with preteens and, and teens but there is one scene that's like oh uh, Shield your eyes. It's not too bad, though. Anyway, such an awesome, fun film. Kung Fu Hustle. Check it out on Hulu right now. It's my number five. Number four for me is Bewitched. This has been spoken about before. And it stars Will Ferrell and Nicole Kidman. For those of you who don't know, it's a fun, witchy Hollywood spin on the TV show. Wait a second. This happened in King Kong, too. So. What? um, (laughs) I love the soundtrack, this movie is on my personal list of makes me feel better movies. My number four is Serenity, which is the film based on the Firefly TV series by Joss Whedon. It is also Joss Whedon's directorial debut. Pretty impressive if you think about that and watch the film thinking in terms of it being a first time director. And now you think about where Joss Whedon is today. Yes. And what he's doing today. What is he doing today? I'm going to look it up. (laughs) I have no idea. But this film 
if you're first of all, watch the freaking Firefly series first if you haven't already. All right, this movie is definitely a capper to that series. You definitely benefit from being familiar with that series, but it is a blast. It is really cool. It expands on the mythology of the series, expands on the action, and the you know definitely provides the production values and everything that the original series had. And of course, the last uh, 20, 30 minutes is super intense and super exciting. Check it out, Serenity. And just to help those who are curious, the latest thing Joss Whedon is working on as director is Batgirl. There's not much information up there, so it's obviously a new project. We'll have to find out later what's going on there. My number three is Walk the Lawn. This is a great story of Johnny Cash and... June Carter Cash. Now, I don't know much about these people because, you know, South Africa... But it's one of the best movies showing an artist's struggle to make their art work for them financially and soulfully. And I just felt like the performances were really great in this film. All right. My number three is Peter Jackson's King Kong. Uh, First of all, remaking a classic like King Kong is one of those things that sounds like a terrible idea. But what Peter Jackson did was instead of trying to quote-unquote replace the original or quote-unquote improve on the original, he actually is paying lovingly tribute to the original. Yes, the film is three hours long, but what he's doing is each hour is its own different act. And it's, um, it kind of reminds me of the Superman movie in this way, where uh, you have... One section that is in one location, in this case, New York City. Another section that is in another location, in this case, Skull Island. And then the third act, the third hour, is in a third location, in this case, back to New York City. Superman by Richard Donner was structured similarly, actually. But it just um, flushes out even more. And the action in this thing is amazing if you have a really good home theater setup you will be astonished by this film the scale is spectacular i mean this thing is is the very definition of action spectacle i absolutely love it and but it's not all just about the visuals right like andy circus's performance as kong it, it actually just like the original kong in use a a certain pathos in the character you know just watch the eyes on Kong in this film that's Andy Serkis yeah yeah it's really great I really think like people under uh, underrate this film it's definitely worth checking out if you haven't already that's King Kong my third favorite film from 2005 Shannon, what's your second favorite film? My number two is available to stream on Netflix, and it's one of my ultimate favorites. It's Lord of War, starring Nicolas Cage. And sometimes I have a hard time describing what this film is about because it's quite complicated if you really think about it. After you've seen it, you'll know what I'm talking about. It follows Nick Cage's character, Yuri, through his young adult life and forward because, uh, well, he becomes an arms dealer, yeah. And you kind of go through what one 
is when they choose that as their career. You know, the ups, the downs, the scares, the dodging of authority, lies to the family. You get to go through all of that. And sometimes I like to think of it as a more serious take on something like The Wolf of Wall Street. The Wolf of Wall Street is crazy as shit. It's hilarious and it's entertaining. But Lord of War kind of takes a serious look at that kind of career. But I also wanted to mention that on the DVD, the commentary is very informative. The director talks about how, you know, they filmed in all these different locations. And again, this was another film that had a couple of locations in South Africa. Buildings as well as areas where, you know, he admits that they had to pay the gang leader in charge of that area a fee so that they could go in and film. It was just perfect. He fell in love with the location and talk about commitment to your movie. And he just had so many insights into the film. I highly recommend checking it out on DVD, actually. Yeah, that's a really good comparison with The Wolf of Wall Street, which I feel is is a better film. My second favorite film of 2005 is Walk the Line, which is a biopic that gets a little bit of derision, I suppose, for being somewhat somewhat the typical biopic structure, you know? But the performances by Joaquin Phoenix and Reese Witherspoon, which at this time, like up to this point, Reese Witherspoon had given like her career best as June Carter Cash. She is magnificent in this movie. I think oh, her performance in Wild is the only one so far that rivals this performance. She's she seems really to be great. good at biopics, huh? Yeah, I suppose. At least in these these two. Joaquin Phoenix becomes Johnny Cash, even in his vocal performances. It's incredibly impressive. It's very moving and beautiful at times. I just I just really love this biopic. James Mangold, who would go on to direct two Wolverine movies, by the way, directed this film. Great film, Walk the Line. It is my second favorite film of 2005. My number one and ultimate favorite of this year, and is also featured on my own personal list of This Makes Me Feel Good movies, is available on HBO, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. As Jeff said, it's based on the book by Douglas Adams. I had no idea what this book was. I had no idea what this film was about. We were, my brother and I were kind of going through the stage where we just, we were going through the stage where we would just see any new film that came out, which maybe explains my bitterness of 2005. So we went to go watch this one. It was, it involved space as far as we could tell from the poster. And when we got in there, the opening scene is the most bizarre thing you will ever see in your life. And it is hilarious because it's so bizarre and you cannot believe what is actually unfolding on the screen. That is at least how I felt. This bizarreness makes it magical, makes it charming, makes you fall in love with it. All the British humor is really fun. It stars Zoe Deschanel. Do I need to say more? Uh, Stephen Fry narrates the film. And it's just such a feel-good movie, but also like just really fun to think about. That is my number one. I hope you guys check it out. It's really worth <laughs> Right on. That's awesome. My favorite movie of 2005 could not be denied. It is Batman Begins by Christopher Nolan. 
Score by Hans Zimmer. Played by Christian Bale. With Gary Oldman as Commissioner Gordon. Killian Murphy as the Scarecrow. Liam Neeson. That's a good year for him, too. Yeah, that's true, actually. <laughs> what do you know? Katie Holmes also starred. I actually think Katie Holmes is a little bit underrated. I wish she's got more performances or more roles. I mean, because I don't think she was bad in this movie. I liked her quite a bit. Killian Murphy is great as the Scarecrow. Ken Watanabe is also in it. This whole... Oh, who is? I will just say Ken Watanabe plays Rosh al Ghul. Oh, yeah. And James Gordon, played by Gary Oldman, is is fantastic. I mean, this is Batman's origin. This is like Batman year one. And you get a sense of Batman as Batman. He is smart. He's a, te- uh, he's a detective, but he's also got the martial arts training. This is as close to the actual Batman from the comics as we've ever gotten, I think. It, I mean, it's just such a, a geekgasm experience. It was unbelievable. It was one of my favorite experiences of 2005. I can't tell you how exciting as a comic book fan, as a Batman fan, it was. It took the 1989 Batman, took to a whole nother level. It was very sincere. It wasn't all about popcorn fun. And, <laughs> oh, also, Tom Wilkinson as Carmine, Carmen Falcone also was really great in it. Yeah. Um, it's pretty funny. You say sincere and I say mature darkness. Yeah. Well, you know, tomato, tomato. And then The Dark Knight, of course, took it to a whole nother level. Uh, but, and we've talked about that in a previous episode. Yeah, I really enjoyed Batman Begins. I, I can't, when I make this list, putting it lower than number one just does not feel right. So it is my favorite film of 2005 what is your favorite film of 2005 was there one that we did not mention or uh do you have share? we offended you in some way <laughs> or or maybe was maybe or was. do you share our loves write to us at the gibson review at gmail.com that's going to about do it for this episode of the movie lovers shanna where can people find you on the internet you can find me at a woman's journey to empowerment that's the singular woman because it's each woman's journey (sighs) and i'm not an english major and that's on instagram with underscores between each word okay very cool you can find more of the gibson review at gibsonreview.com and go to facebook the Gibson Review to find mini reviews, third-party links, more episodes on both Facebook and on the blog, all sorts of things on the Facebook page. Find more episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud, as well as find me on Flickchart, The Gibson 99. I have over 3,100 movies that I have seen on there. Check out what movies I've seen and uh, feel free to connect with me on there. Next time on The Movie Lovers, Justice League will be our main event, which is I'm actually really excited about. I know a lot of people aren't because DC hasn't been doing so great, but I watched the trailer of Justice League and I can't help but get excited for this movie. Also, Film Faves will be counting down our favorite movies of 2004, which I think is the best year of that decade. So that will be a tough one and a very interesting one for us to go through. 
keep an eye out for that. Uh, that will be out in another two weeks. Until then, this is Jeff and Shanna telling you to keep loving the movies. Bye-bye. Uh, we love you, Obama. <laughs>